Hello everybody, welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. We're doing things a little bit different today. Instead of featuring a new guest, I've got a, reoccur- or a past guest, I should say, a, a friend of mine, Mr. Rod Chong, who in conversation uh, would say he broached a subject and thought it would be an excellent topic for discussion. So Rod, I'll turn it over to you and you can tell the listeners what we're going to talk about today. Well, I find myself increasingly, as I'm uh, in different types of uh, meetings with different people from the car industry or car enthusiasts, that we're increasingly seem to be looking at the past. And it's widely recognized now that the car as we know it is about to change. The whole car industry is being disrupted as uh, new technologies come in, as electrification comes in. We hear about this term e-mobility. We see scooters uh, in in major uh, cities now around the world as new transportation solutions. And then we hear a lot about um, autonomous driving coming in. So often uh, in in my world, as as I'm involved with some aspects of uh, the future of the automobile in my career, uh, a lot of people from the industry are saying that what we're going to see on the roads 10 years from now, 15 years from now will be very different to what we see today. We might not even want to call them cars anymore. We might it actually would be better to call them automobiles. So increasingly people that are enthusiasts or love racing and and, and uh or car enthusiasts or the automotive lifestyle uh, increasingly we're starting to look backwards into the past. And we're we're starting to hear this term this is the last of whatever that may be. It's the last uh, naturally aspirated mid-engine Ferrari. It's the last Porsche with uh, hydraulic um, uh, power steering. It's the last whatever sports car with a clutch, with a with a manual transmission. And increasingly, we seem to be in this mode where we're looking at vehicles that may be two, three years old or currently available um, for sale now. And we look at them, we say, that's the last of the air. There'll never be anything like that again. So as part of this theme, uh, I I thought it'd be interesting for us just to look at the story of the car, and maybe it's a bit of a grandiose, ambitious uh, project for us to do uh, today, but we thought we'd uh, start from the beginning of the car and and see, well, how did we end up here? And maybe there's something we can learn um, to see where can auto enthusiasts, car fans, motorsports fans, where can, where's our place in the future? Because it's a little bit unclear right now. Certainly. Um, agreed, we might not be able to get through all of the, our pages and pa- pages, literally five pages of notes that we've managed to amass in regards to this ahead of our discussion, um, which we certainly did not look at anything on Wikipedia or Google prior to pressing that record. absolutely did not happen. Maybe it did happen. But not, not very much, though. No, but by, by the time anyone's hearing this, it definitely happened days ago. It was days only ago. to verify what we already knew. Exactly, exactly. But, uh, I mean, should we just kick it off then with the the first production car? Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know how many people listening to this uh, really know the exact dates and times um, for the story of car, but the first production car was considered to be in, came out in 1885. Um, Who was that 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 designed that? Wasn't it? It was Carl Benz, right? Yes. But um, I think I saw that or recreation of that vehicle run at Pebble Beach one year back. Mm. Um, but then the belt snapped on it, and then it wasn't. It was planning to attend and go on part of the tour that they do on the Thursday, 
but it snapped on the thing and wasn't able to make the drive. I've seen it sitting in the uh, Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart. Yeah. Um, interestingly, at the time, it wasn't called a car. It was called a horseless carriage, mm -hmm. strangely. And they had to, at the times, it still was that just in the US where they had to walk with a person had to walk in front of them? There's the UK. There was a oh, law. The there was a yeah. law, yeah. I can never remember which country it was. You'd think I'd know that kind yeah. of thing, right? Because of your accent? Yeah. But, um... Where are you from again? England. You're not from British? No, no, Britland? No, no, no I'm definitely English. As English okay. as they come. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the idea of now looking back on it, having someone stand in front of you while you are in your <laughs> vehicle seems a bit distressing. Of yeah. Sorts. <laughs> yeah, and you can imagine the, um, the, the surprise that people had with their what they're used to is horse and carriage or horses as their the means of transportation when these uh smoking machines first showed up but that takes us to 10 years later as a key uh key moment in our our virtual uh our journey through uh the history of car the storyline of car 1895 what was in 1895 well that was when the people got together and said you know what these these things we could we could maybe see if mine's faster than yours Interestingly, the the function of motorsports, I, this this first race, which was uh, in France, Paris to Bordeaux and back, um, the winner made an average speed of twenty four point one five kph. It's amazing, but but so that, is, that is just a little bit faster than those electric scooters that we talked about <laughs> earlier on there. Yeah, interesting. But this points to the original function that motorsports had, where motorsports was used back at the beginning of the automobile to showcase to the public that these new strange horseless carriages could be reliable and could be a viable form of transportation and that it was what racing back then was used to push engineering and development in, in a big way interestingly that year as well was the first uh, motorsports event or race was also in the US Thanksgiving of that same year 1895 in Evanston, Illinois. Do you know where that? I've never heard of that place. Yeah, so it's before. just north of Chicago. Also, okay. my wife really enjoys Evanston, also because of their famous Andy's custard that they have there, really? which is some uh, a great uh, dairy-based dessert. I would highly recommend when you ever passing through Evanston. No one go get. No Andy's one has custard. dairy products anymore. That's unfashionable now. Well, it's it's one when you got to bring it back for okay. Andy's custard. It's a good it's a good old school Middle America fast food chain that everyone needs to shop at for custard. And milkshakes. I mean, what else are you going to do on a road trip, right? Moving along. Yes. Um, our next date, 1902, the supercharger. Mm -hmm. I really don't know anything else about when the supercharger showed up. So we'll just carry we'll just keep, on. We'll just move through these next ones. Well, the next one is interesting because it's 1911. And uh, this was at the first, I believe it was the first Indy 500. Mm hmm um, and that was an uh, incredible innovation that we all take for granted now. The rear vision mirror. Yeah. Even Kiwi's all about it. She's like, yeah, I like looking in the rear vision mirror. <laughs> that's uh, that's a little dog that's currently sitting in James's lap. So um, at the time, it was for uh, race cars had two, a driver and a co-driver. Mm -hmm. And one of the roles of the co-driver was to look back and yell in the ear of the uh, the driver if someone was coming to pass and be a spotter. So um, someone had the, the, the idea, well, let's put a piece of mirrored glass and save weight 
don't need a, a co-driver and they won the race. I mean, it makes perfect yeah. sense. Especially because someone's shouting in your ear all the time. It'd be really <laughs> annoying as well. Distracting, after, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, maybe that was it. The, it was a the, combination of two things, weight and distractions. And then 1913, Model T. Mm -hmm. We're in America now. The all gothic, all black yep, comes in Model in color. T. Mass production. Yep. Key moment. I find that interesting, though. If you're looking back in 1913, uh, Model T is still a major part of hot rod culture and uh hot rod culture is still going back to one of the earliest examples of uh of the automobile the first mass production car obviously model a's are a bit more you know the the main uh machine that they build hot rods off mm -hmm. but uh still it's interesting to see that there's this one um car culture movement that's still going right back to the the early history the of the automobile of it, so yeah. To speak. yeah yeah i mean it is impressive and they're still obviously reusing i should say those original cars this day to try and make them better than ever well i yeah i find it kind of sad sometimes someone will find an amazing model a or model t you know, know historic up. and then they they just take the body off and just get rid of the rest never mind that bit but off it used to be back in the history of hot riding people would just drive out into the desert find a find an old uh old chassis and bring it back around. and build a hot rod yeah that's no longer the case though yeah there's, there's none left out there in the desert do, do not try that <laughs> well it depends which desert i guess you go to i suppose there might be one you, you might run out under of a few, few tons of sand or whatever but I, I guess we can then move swiftly on i should say to uh this is when things start to get moving with the bootleggers in the 1920s and i have to point out that this this list is completely arbitrary. Yeah, completely arbitrary. There's Based no on rhyme what, or what we think is uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So if you've got any challenges, we can certainly more than welcome to bring them to our attention. After mm. the fact, you listen to this. We're happy to revisit this again and talk more. But, I mean, unlike the idea of someone figured out that we've got to move this uh, booze, one might say, mm. corn whiskey, got to move it fast and the quickest way to do that is in a car and if we lighten it and we can change it we can then move this without anyone catching us uh so you're getting back to prohibition mm -hmm. right and how the and you're talking about the beginning of nascar yes that too yeah the beginning of stock car racing mm -hmm. yeah came from illicit activity it did and this is an interesting theme um if you look at street racing or illegal activity with cars they often led to uh, organized motorsport happening later. NASCAR came from bootlegging. Mm -hmm. um, NHRA drag racing came from street racing that was all across the U.S. Um, and if you look at D1GP, Formula D, drifting started on the streets first. Yep. And um, there's, there's many different examples of things starting on streets and then, then moving to racetracks. Yeah. And then also in that time, we look as what other things, one of my highlights would be the Bentley Boys, mm. where it was a group of gentlemen who thought it would be good to race their cars around a racetrack. And that was also the same sort of time when we got the, uh, the Brooklyn's Gazette, which you had a hard time uh, getting your head around the word Gazette, Rod. Yeah, this and that an animal. <laughs> That's a gazelle. One gazelle? Oh, yes. okay. No, Dyslexia. The, the Brooklyn's Gazette is the... Brooklyn's what, Gazelle. No. Uh, what we call nowadays, it's a motorsport historical racing magazine rather than just motorsport magazine. I motor sport, mm -hmm. not motorsport. That's right, two words. I have been corrected two words. in the past. Yeah. But I, I, getting back to the Bentley boys, uh, the, it's interesting that 
is common then that um, the race cars would be driven from the UK, mm-hmm. put on a ferry, and then they drive to Le Mans, race them, and then drive them back home. And that that went on, I believe, even into the 1960s. Pretty much, yeah. It was a premise of being able to have the cars there and then drive them, and then to do. They may have even maybe done some test runs on the British motorways before going to Le Mans <laughs> in some of those cars. Yeah, the the I think it was the, the first uh, Porsche prototypes, the 904, definitely, maybe even the 906 were street legal. Mm-hmm. Did they? They drove and them. They drove. You could drive them on the street, drive them to a sports car race or Le Mans, race them, and then drive them home. Mm-hmm. That was that was fairly common even into the 60s. I, I heard something about the Bentley boys that um, them being proper gentlemen. That when the Le Mans would uh, the race would go into the evening, they would do a pit stop. And they'd put a dinner jacket on and then keep racing because yeah, I, they were proper gentlemen. I, I understand. That's very true. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think they should still do that now for Lamar, I think seems sensible. But instead of a <laughs> racing jacket, it should just be racing like gentlemen, over, uh, gentlemen Kevlar or whatever, five suit that you wear. And when did they get rid of two drivers and decide that three drivers was a good thing? That was more – in the 80s, they still did two drivers at Lamar. I thought that was before that they still – but maybe I'm wrong. You've got to get your, I think it was your more than nineteen eighty. Anyway, we're skipping ahead here. Yeah, we're going to be. You've got to touch on your dry lake bed racing because you like your. Ah, well, uh, now we're looking at the uh, the early history of uh, hot rodding, mm-hmm. which, um, well, it really took off uh, post war, where um, a lot of the the soldiers coming back uh, after World War Two, they had a lot of skill with working on airplanes, etc., and um, they would take these old. Um, old cars out of junkyards and, and uh, you know, do the engines up. And, and the first place that they started racing them, interestingly, was the the dry lakes. El Mirage, uh, outside of Los Angeles, was considered one of the main birthplaces of, of hot rodding. And then eventually that, that went over to uh, Bonneville. Um, obviously, there was land speed records that were happening in the 30s, uh, earlier before then. But uh, it was interesting that land speed record uh, runs were more associated with hot rodding before it shifted to drag racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also because obviously we record this in California. Yeah. It's significant to talk about the impact that California particularly has on certain aspects yeah. of the industry. One other thing I want to say about hot rodding is that it you could consider it the first true automotive youth culture, or you could say young people or young adults or teenagers, and them uh, having a lifestyle related to cars. All across the U.S., certainly, um, in the 1950s or yeah, even the 40s, yep. um, you go to any town, you'd see hot rods mm-hmm. cruising up and down. Go to any high school, you'd see these these machines. And this is this predates Detroit starting to take note of these these kids and starting to build uh, muscle cars for them. Yeah. So I mean, we we might want to just skip over the Silver Arrows because we don't want to get into that whole pre-war business of what was happening there. But well, that that was an interesting time. Um, I know the premise of the cars itself with how powerful they were and how fast they went is uh well the the interesting thing about the silver arrows and we're talking about the auto unions which later became uh, Audi mm-hmm. as an organization and then we're also looking at um uh, Mercedes-Benz those cars in particular um were considered so technically advanced uh this is right before the outbreak of World War 2 that they dug some of them out um, post-war, even though they're outdated. They're still the most technically advanced uh, vehicles. But I find it fascinating that it was very fashionable to take these cars and um, 
do top speed runs. Mm -hmm. And in early sections of the Autobahn, um, they would take streamlined versions of these cars and, and try and set uh, closed road course uh, records. See how fast they can yeah. truly go. One other uh, little bit of trivia related to these cars is that um, sometimes when these the Silver Arrows would race, they would be open wheel. And sometimes when they would race, they would be closed wheel. And uh, there was no distinction between, even in what was considered Grand Prix cars, they could be closed wheel or open wheel. And there was only, um, after a period of time, some rules came out that said, um, nope, Formula One, Grand Prix, that's open wheel, and sports cars are closed wheel. But there's a period of time, especially with these cars, that they weren't. Where there was both together. Are we, together. Are we getting too detailed here? Is no. This, we're, we're geeking out here no, properly. I like it. Okay. And we're going to jump back to the, the expansion of the highways, because that aided in that post-war culture of the hot running that you love so much. Uh, I find it interesting uh, that the world's first freeway or in your brit speak englishness dual carriageway isn't mm -hmm. that what you say yep i don't know if our american motorway uh, is what we say motorway i mm -hmm. thought dual carriageway is also what an american would say for freeway well it's this, uh, the motorway is what it is but it is two dual it is a yeah. dual carriageway at any rate the world's first one was in los angeles mm -hmm. and you can drive on it today and it's a pretty wild <laughs> road it's the the 110 coming out of downtown going up to pasadena that was the first time that, that this type of motorway was ever constructed. And anyone uh, uh, who lives in Los Angeles that's listening to this, it's really worth driving on it because it's a pretty crazy road. Yeah, I just love how you get to merge so quickly on the 110. It's always this. You're in, right in, as quick as you go. Yeah. Well, should we explain that? You you sit on the side of the road right beside the, 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 the cars going at speed. You're at a full stop. Mm-hmm. And you have to literally try and find a gap in traffic and pull. You've got maybe, I don't know, 20 meters. And it's full send. Yeah. Yeah. To, to merge. Yeah. Anyway, we're really going off to the side here. But if we're keeping it on um, American highways, then we're also going to talk about the car cruising culture, which certainly would have come into form here in the 40s and 50s post-war. When people are coming back, like you say, from the war, they're getting a car because they're affordable, because thanks to the Model Ts with the mass production. And now they're able to go and show off maybe what they've done to their car to show off how unique they are driving down the street here in the U.S. I think when you look at the late 40s and the 50s, especially in SoCal, you've got a lot of really interesting things happening. One, you've got uh, rampant street racing. Mm -hmm. And then um, this led to the, the birth of the NHRA, where um, the, the NHRA was created to try and stop street racing and to... to um, give hot rodding a some level of legitimacy and create a motorsport and this also was interlinked with the the found founding of hot rod magazine in 1948 mm -hmm. which interestingly led to um the first uh small block uh car that you could buy and just take it out on saturday night and go street racing which was the 1955 uh, chevy which was the the car which had the first uh, small block uh, V8. But I also like in the same time as we go to a different part of the world back in post-war Europe, instead of looking at developing V8s, you've got the Citroen 2CV and the VW Beetle coming out. Those are both the same 40s. year? Yeah. Really? Yeah. One was obviously designed to carry your eggs and milk and have two seats for you to sit outside. Mm. And the other one was just to get everyone around it. People's car. Yeah. 
I mean, it came, Volkswagen. It came from a different era, and there was a different. Certainly, maybe we don't we don't want to dig too deep into the money laundering and the Ponzi scheme associated with it. But in 1948, when it was coming through, it was all all clear then, so it was all good. I actually have no idea what you're talking about. There was a, a program when it originally came out during the war, where mm. you could buy the car, but then you're given money, and then no one actually ended up getting the car. Ah. So there was the idea essentially buying war bonds, so to speak, ah, and getting the car. Interesting. But that's a, and probably someone could easily correct me and tell me how wrong I am about that. But that was the general gist is what I understood about it. So we're now into the 1950s here, and we've got a lot of pretty cool stuff happening. Mm-hmm. I think some things that some of our listeners here might not realize was happening way back then. We got 1950, uh, the creation of Autosport magazine, mm-hmm. fantastic UK magazine. Mm-hmm. We've got 1953, the launch of the World Sports Car Championship. Also, 1953 was the uh, first disc brake, which is an interesting story that um, appeared at Le Mans in 1953 in the Jaguar. I can't say it. Jag- ja- Jaguar. Jaguar. Mm-hmm. Jaguar team. Um, they showed up with this car that somehow stopped better than uh, all the other cars and um the they were going up against the top italian teams ferrari lancia and um these other cars uh they broke their gearboxes uh you know trying to downshift and slow down and not wreck their brakes and uh and uh, it was considered a big success this new special brake the disc brake of course we take that for granted it's hard to buy a car without disc brakes now these days it's really difficult to find a car with drum brakes exactly um 1957. Your favorite? Well, I mean, most people think of the 57 Chevy or the 57 Cadillac. But when 57 comes along for you, Rod, do you think about the... Toyo Pet. That's right. And so how, <laughs> how many of them did they sell? I think it was about 300. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, does anyone here know what the Toyo Pet is? This was Toyota's first attempt to break into the U.S. market um, with a... A sedan called the Toyopet, but it really was not a success. It, it was too slow, underpowered. It couldn't keep up to speed with the big American V8 cars mm-hmm. on the on the freeways of America, and it was a uh, didn't work out very well. And it was only a, um, they actually stopped selling them, and and uh, Toyota kind of went back to Japan and, and had to think about took a hiatus yes. from the automo- the U.S. Yeah. automotive market. Yeah, they came back in 1965. Interestingly, which is amazing to think now. If you think what a powerhouse uh, Toyota is, what a incredible um, they success still, story they are. Do they still sell the most cars in the U.S. per month? I don't remember now, actually. I can't remember the numbers. Mm. I think they're pretty. Uh, I thought I thought they were. They sold more cars than anyone else in per month, but I could be wrong. I just make things up, and someone tells me I'm wrong eventually. Uh. So, if we're looking at that, I mean, since we haven't really touched on it too much, but the first rear-engine sports car in 1958 in Formula One. Here's that mid. It's rear-engine sports car, so it'll be mid-engined. Mid-engined. Yeah. Driven by Sterling, Sir Sterling Moss. Ah. And it seems obvious now, doesn't it? Yeah. The idea of a, a mid-engine car. Uh, interestingly, uh, before I forget, due to my ADD here, but 1963 was the last year that a front-engine car won Indy 500. From there on, it was uh, mid-engine cars. Mm-hmm. We've got 1959. The Mini. The BMW Mini. You've misspelled it. It's BMC here. You mean the British Motor Corporation Mini? I thought it's Bavarian Motor Works. Didn't, didn't BMW invent the Mini? Uh, maybe. Maybe. No. no. I think they just own the rights to it now. Okay. Fine. I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, Sir Alex, is he going us at the time? 
George that put it together, designed it. The idea to carry uh, a family and have uh, the shopping in the back as well was the logic behind it. Mm. And to see where BMW have taken it, have taken it. It's not really a mini anymore, one might say. A maxi. <laughs> yeah, it's more a large. But then after that, I mean, if we're talking about everything, since we want to get a little bit of history in here, the uh, 1962 was the year of the famed, that, that cheap second-hand car that you can buy like at every corner now, the Ferrari 250 GTO. Considered one of the most beautiful cars ever. Mm-hmm. And the subject of the uh, the Ferrari uh, Cobra uh, battle. Yes, yeah, somewhat of a rivalry there, one yeah, might say. Yeah, I find it interesting uh, on, on that subject that... Um, that Carroll Shelby, uh, after they stopped racing the, the Daytona Cobras, I think in it was 65 or 66, they sold the cars off for $5,000, yeah. which is amazing. There's some of the most expensive uh, sought-after cars now, right? Over $10 million for one now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then, so go buy your used drift cars, everyone. But the question is, though, would you rather have the Ferrari 250 GDO or would you rather go for the old Oldsmobile Jetfire? Ah, here's here's our other 1962 car. Do you know this story? No, I just know the fantastic uh, graphics that you provided me. Ah, well, I think a lot of people would think of when you say turbo, and you try and think, well, what what is an early turbo production car? Uh, Maybe the BMW uh, 2002 Mm -hmm. turbo comes to mind, or is that that is early 70s or you might think of the Porsche 930 mm-hmm. which is what 1975 but mm-hmm. interestingly it was an american car that was the first turbocharged production car the Oldsmobile Jetfire in 1962 and it really was not a success but it, it did lead the name for the transformer to be named Jetfire shortly after i think in uh, 20 years later give it a take someone should remake a Oldsmobile Jetfire as, instead as of a jet, jet fire. Yeah, sort of like a Concorde. As a transformer. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. But that was a total disaster. Um, the the car was redrawn after uh, one year. It was horribly unreliable. And um, yeah, turbochargers, I think uh, Chevrolet had some success with, with the Corvair, although that car was definitely had a, a problematic... Uh, it had some other issues, yeah. I think one might say. PR, PR issues. Yeah, Ralph Nader, I think, uh, didn't, didn't do the Corvair mm. very much justice there. Ah, poor Corvair. Yeah. It was an interesting car, you know. It was it was the an American car that was it was the American car industry's attempt to make a European style and sports it, car. It's a pretty car. It's a good looking car. Yeah, light, good handling mm-hmm. in theory. Um anyway, the poor Corvair. It, interestingly, it was replaced by the Camaro. That's why they sought production of it. Because the Mustang came out and it was a big success. And when did the Mustang come out? It came out in 1965. Four. Four. Yeah. That's what I almost said. You did. It was a good guess. But that was just after, I think, what is it, the Pontiac? Ah. Here we we have what is considered the first proper production muscle car. Oh, it's say the the golden age, to be correct, of muscle cars. But this was the first. Well, it was the Mustang. No, it was not the Mustang. Actually, the Mustang was not considered... It's a, pony a muscle car. car. Yeah, it's a smaller car. Yeah, no, it was the uh, Tempest Pontiac Tempest GTO, and at the time, Tempest and GTO. I think GTO was a, a package you could get for the Tempest, which was the the first notion of a slightly smaller body, big powerful engine that could go straight really well and go street racing right away mm-hmm. or drag racing. Yeah, 
the the Ford Mustang was considered. I think the Camaro was even still when it first came out was considered a um, a pony car as well because it was small. The smaller mm. engine, the smaller engine V8 yeah. thing was made, mentioned it to be a pony car. Yeah. Interestingly, I don't know if you know this. You probably know this, but the Camaro, right? That came out '68. Um, it was produced in a lot lower numbers than than the the Ford Mustang. The Ford Mustang was produced in such high numbers. Um, there are millions and millions of them. It's considered one of the most successful launches of any new car ever. Um, that they don't go up in value. You can still get a, a 1960s Mustang for relatively cheap. I know. I'm looking for one right now. You so are. if anyone's wanting to sell me one, I'm looking for one. Like a 2005 classic. Uh, probably a little bit earlier than that. A little bit earlier. 94. No, a little bit earlier still. A little bit earlier. Mustang 2. Uh, well, very. I would very much take a Mustang too. You know, I'm looking for a what is it, 64 to 67 Mustang Coupe. Oh, really? V8, uh, 289. Did they say Coupe in in America? Uh, they, they definitely did. They didn't say Coupe. No, they did not say Coupe. They said Coupe. Really? That's exactly. That's all I ever heard in six back in 64 when I was around the chops then. <laughs> in your previous life. Exactly. Exactly. But there was also 64. Two other big things. One might say, I might say anyway, one of the first cars in a movie that you can reminisce about goldfinger that's right james bond yep Aston martin mm. that's a key moment yeah also in here some i don't think it maybe it was 63 62 is you had um the genre of rock and roll which was around hot rodding mm-hmm. uh, you have the beach boys uh singing all sorts of songs about hot rodding and cult- car culture yep. and if you look at um Rock, mu- rock and roll music at the time, early 60s, it was one and the same with car culture. You're in your car cruising up and down, you're a teenager, you're street racing, whatever, you're going to the drive drive through, drive in, drive something. Yeah. Um, and you're listening to this music and there, there was no difference between it. When you were hanging out at the hop, as the kids might say back then. Did, did they say that? At the hop, yeah, that's what the Beach Boys sang about. But while, then, you, while you're roller skating? Yeah, well, they roller skate over and bring you a burger and fries uh, and your shake. When I was a kid, actually, that you could still go to A&W and, and uh, park up and they put the tray on the window and you'd eat in the car. And I still remember as a kid going to the movies, sitting in the car. Some of the other cars around were shaking in a strange way. I'm not sure why. Uh, it's because of the bass that they had yeah, going on. That I was think it was the stereos. It was all about this in stereo. But also, obviously, 1964, they talked about it earlier, was the Ford GT40. Mm when they wanted to try and win at any cost mentality to beat those boys in red, those Ferraris. Yeah, that was, uh, took them a while to figure that out. Yeah. They got humiliated a few times uh, at, um, at Le Mans. They did. But then they sort of like, well, they beat them. Because when did Ferrari won out, out right after that? I think, what was the last year Ferrari won? Was it, I think it was 65, the last, yeah. the last year Ferrari won Le Mans. Outright, outright. Yeah, outright. I mean, they've yeah. won their class, obviously, in yeah. lower classes, but not outright yeah. since then. So you could say that, that Ford buried Ferrari at Le Mans. Le Mans, you're mispronouncing it, Le Mans. There, well, that's true, that's true. And at we, Le Mans. So since we've already touched on... I'm just kidding. Uh, Toyota coming back in 65, let's skip over to 66, which is a great year, a very great year indeed. Why was it a great year, Rod? The world's first supercar. Yes, which was? A Lamborghini Mura. Correct, with its uh, fancy eyelashes. And a V12 that was facing a funny direction. It was, it was. But not only that, you also had the invention of RC cars. 
I didn't realize it was that long ago. 66, yeah. Who invented the RC car? Or wh- where were the first ones made? Um, I didn't... In Japan somewhere. Tamiya. Uh, Kyosha. I, no. don't, I think it was England. Because my dad UK. was... Yeah, my dad really? was racing cars up at that point. He was one of the first ones that started getting into it in the late mm. 60s when he was, he was doing it. Because that was when he was having his slot cars, as they called them back yeah. then. Yeah. So yeah, shout out to my father who has a great slot car collection and still does it to this day. Did you did you race slot cars when you were a kid? No, it sort of went out. We did get we did have a Tamiya Frog though, because mm. the Hornet was not really reliable. When everyone else got the Hornet, I got the Frog. That was all beginner stuff. Look, you did to get into the associated RC10 or no? I, right, I just didn't have that kind of that expertise <laughs> when I was eight years old. Uh, was perfect I, I grew up uh, racing slot cars, but I, I grew up in Canada, and we the, the two main brands were uh, AFX mm-hmm. and uh, Tyco, mm-hmm. and they were 164 scale, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. It was still good. I had like a huge track in my bedroom. I had like a pit lane and mountains and bank corners. Yeah, because my dad actually has the Lamar track put out to scale in 132nd scale. Oh, that's much bigger, right? Yeah. Scale electric is 132nd scale, yeah. Yeah, it's so bigger. you've got them. And so I've still got my uh, one of my own cars that he looks after and caters for me, which is my Dodge Viper that he has there, which is great rear engine because oh. it's got the motor at the back. Oh, no, the motor at the front waits at the back so that it can move. Oh, like yeah. yeah. Super cool. Technology. And then... 68. Let's skip over 67. Nothing really happened in 67, but 68. Bullet charging down the streets of San Francisco. A dark green Mustang. Mm-hmm. Steve McQueen, the famous Le Mans racing driver. Did he win Le Mans? Uh, he won Baja, I think. He didn't win. He won Le Mans, I'm sure, right? Yeah. If you Google Steve McQueen, Le Mans, Le Mans you think. Again, yeah. I'm just kidding. This is not true at all. He did win. I know he raced at Sebring mm-hmm. and did quite well. Um, bullet. And then we also have a couple other key mo- uh, marker moments. One was, you could say, the commercialization of Formula One. Yes, with tobacco sponsorship. Yeah, hitting Lotus. With uh, Colin thinking very ahead of the game there, I think. Colin Chapman. Yep. Yeah. There's quite a lot of controversy about that. Um, prior to that, all the uh, Formula One teams, the, the color of the cars would indicate what country the team was from. Yes. Right? So you had uh, British Racing Green, that dark uh, dark green, and you had um, red was the uh, was the Italian cars, mm-hmm. blue, um, French cars. Interestingly, German cars were supposed to be white, but somewhere along the line that became silver um, because getting back to the silver arrows, uh, they thought to lighten the cars, they took the paint off of them. Yeah, which I didn't realize that was how they got their name. It was the, it, 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 still, I thought it was a paint that they applied, but no. the white paint had the extra flake in. It was just yeah. all the metal which was given them that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Clever. And uh, what was America? Was it blue with a white stripe or white with a blue stripe? I can't remember. None of, we're, neither of us are American. Yeah, so, so we don't worry about these we're not things. Very good. We need to be better at Amer- being American. Well, we, we should know this. Well, uh, when, as soon as they give me a green card, then I'll, okay. I'll say yes. Okay, fine. So, we got more uh, more movies, and I think we're we're including movies, and we're going to talk about video games and things like that later on in the series, provided we get to the 1990s, yeah, or 1980s, so. yeah. um, because it's important to look at um, us being car culture fans. We want, we're also looking at how automobile culture impacted um, wider 
wider cultures elements like uh, we're talking about uh, rock and roll and the, the relation of car to music but we also can see um, key moments with movies yeah and cars I mean certainly especially with the one that I picked here which is the Italian job mm. I mean that obviously it did feature the Lamborghini Mura right at the start with while the young man was or the older man I, I should say I've was, never seen it you've never seen the Italian job you you just think of it as the the remake with uh, Mark Wahlberg in don't you when you yeah. think of it that's what you mean, right? Yeah, that's the one. That's okay. the one with Jason. So Sager. you have this wrong in 1969. Then. No, that's you the ahead it. of it. The ahead of it. But uh, a great start. One of the greatest movie starts ever with the Lamborghini Mura. Listening to a bit of Matt Monroe, putting some fancy Italian sunglasses on. I mean, it's what it's how I pretend to go to work every day. <laughs> I mean, it's living the dream right there. And then featuring obviously the chase with the three minis in yeah. red, white, and blue. That I've seen before. Where they might have. Uh, well, you have to watch the movie. I don't want to spoil it for you. 69 also had something else happen. Uh, it's also worth noting that by this time, we're at the height of muscle car mania. There yeah. were so many crazy muscle cars coming out. Um, it was a golden era. For cars in general. Yeah. Just and, a good time. And I think we're also in the golden era of, uh, of drag racing as well. We've got funny cars, uh, which were hugely popular. Um, oh, we also passed by, you know what we passed by? Hot Wheels. When was that? 68. Oh, Rod, come on, man. I thought that was you. Sorry. That's all right. At least we got there yeah. in the end. That's the we got thing. Hot Wheels uh, being founded in 1968. And, um, but 69 also had a significant moment. Um, probably a lot of the people listening to this would, would, uh, would know this. The Skyline GTR. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm very important car that continues and i find it interesting as we go through this seeing how few cars survive today yeah particular lines of cars and that's i think it's also interesting to see how the car companies have changed to sort of as well to diminish that line of cars that they will sell mm. as well to try and keep much in line with the idea of trying to which is obviously makes sense to keep costs down and whatnot to try and maximize profit plus mm. making the cars probably kind of expensive yeah, I, th I find it incredible to think that in the 1950s in America, every year they'd rebody the car. Yeah, it's every crazy single year. Every year, different looks yeah. different. Or well, minor changes, minor tweaks here or there. Well, if you think of a 55 Chevy, 56 Chevy, 57 Chevy, or go to 58, or actually do the entire 50s of Chevys. All different. Every year they're comp they're different. Yeah, uh, that would never. It's worth noting though that. It probably was easy easier to change the bodies because they they were sitting on this um, rail frame, and there was very little technical innovation. Uh, some would say that this is one reason why the American car industry fell behind was that there was a set way of making a car, and there was very little technical um, or engineering uh, evolution that happened for quite a long time. They sat on their laurels basically, whereas the Japanese and the European uh, engineers they continued to innovate. Um, especially when you're looking at the uh, 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Which we're probably going to get into now, right? Because doesn't 70 come after 69? Uh, Zero is born, 1970. Yeah. Oh, look at that. So um, it, one other thing that we should point out, because uh, I'm seeing a little bit of uh, news about it, 69, um, Porsche is celebrating um, the anniversary of the Porsche 917. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. I like that they've got Richard Atwood out there yeah. going hammer and tongue wherever he can with the car. 
And it's inter interesting to note that the 1969 Porsche 917 was considered a very not a very balanced and very dangerous race car. It was only until 1970 that they they figured it out. And in 1970, they won Le Mans. That was the first time that um, that Porsche won Le Mans. Sorry, Le Mans. Mm -hmm. Le Porsche. Mans. Porsche won Le Mans. Porsche. One Porsche Le won Le Mans. That's right. Por that's the correct pronunciation, right? Exactly. Porsche. Exactly. And it was also the year that, uh, wasn't it that guy or Steve was like hanging off the front of cars and filming as well? Mr. McQueen? Yeah. Yeah. Filmed, uh, and uh, in my mind, the opening sequence of the Le Mans film is the greatest uh, sequence of motorsports filming ever. I, I've never seen anything that's as powerful and potent as the the first five minutes of uh, when the race starts in that film. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And what what is amazing is that they entered a camera car, a 908, in the race to get all these shots. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah. I mean, the less really said about the movie, the better maybe. But the opening sequence is still... It's an amazing film. What are you talking about? Well, the story is not quite... It's minimalist. There's no dialogue. <laughs> You just have to understand. Totally Don't, you're not allowed to say bad things about this film. All right. Okay. I won't say bad things about it. But uh, when it was released in 71, obviously, it was only me saying bad things about it. But let's get to... It was not considered a success, I don't think, was it? Well, it was a success for Steve because he may have or may have not uh, driven in, in part of the race that year. I think in 71, he allegedly... Oh, really? Allegedly, he may have driven a section of the race in the wee hours of the morning. Oh, I never knew that. Allegedly. Huh. Allegedly. So, 72. Unfortunately, this has started, we're getting to the end of the golden era of the muscle car. Yeah, because we're getting on towards the golden era of the oil crisis. Yes. <laughs> the death of the muscle car. Yeah. And uh, it's befitting to look in 72 that we can see that that's when the this little car from Japan, the Honda Civic, showed up. Yeah, and, and uh, started. And I, I find it amazing to think of that little car and look at what a Honda Civic is like now. Yeah, I mean it's, they, it's a big car. Yeah, and but also it's funny enough where you see it now, where it's a, a big car, but also I mean that Civic Type R, the latest generation, is incredibly fast and yeah. agile. Yeah, I mean, whew, it's a little bit different to the original one. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um. So, moving along, I still think you could consider, um, if we just cast our eye on motorsports, there's some exciting things happening. We've got the World Sports Car Championship happening with all the 917s and the Ferrari uh, 512 race cars, mm -hmm. which was uh, one of the last big factory uh, efforts from the Ferrari and sports car racing. Um, I think it was after 74 or so they, they decided to pull out of sports car racing and just concentrate on F1. F1. Yeah. Um, and then they might have had some success in Formula One as well, I think, Ferrari. But we can get maybe, to that later. Maybe. Yeah. We haven't really talked about F1 very much. But. Well, we'll get there. The golden era of F1. The, my, what I think is the golden era yeah. of F1. Anyway. Uh, it's interesting for me, um, when I think about what types of car history I love and what type I'm not quite as uh, interested in, it really comes down to whether the cars have wide tires or not. Oh, okay. That that for me is the defining line. If the cars have wide tires, you're in. Really cool. Yeah. If they don't have wide tires, you're out. Not interested. Okay. And if they have wire wheels, we are definitely not interested. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to some degree in a textbook way, but I don't feel as much passion. But 
I think often that relates to what was around when one was a, a kid. Yeah, right? and I think it's probably the influence as well. Because, I mean, obviously I'm well aware of the 60s Formula 1 because that's my, what my father's favorite era was and mm. what he grew up watching and then he yeah. goes through the race in the 70s. Um, but that doesn't, I just doesn't have as much appeal to me. Uh-oh, we've got someone that's making noises here. The little creature here? Yeah, Kiwi, what's wrong? Come on up and kill. No. Oh. She's running away. She's like, she's had enough, Dad. Oh. But anyway, let's get back to this. So, 76 for me is a big year. Um, one, it's the the Porsche 911 Turbo. Uh-huh. This is very exciting. But also, it's the Porsche 935. Oh. Uh, which was um, also a turbocharged race car, but that was the uh, race car version, um, or the main race car version. There's also the 934 back then, too, in 1976. Um, also, a, another key moment here we have in 1976 is the first hot hatch. Yeah. The gold GTI. GTI. Good to it. Yeah. I mean, it gets you where you need to go, right? I, I think that that was a very significant moment. This, this affordable, uh, lightweight performance car. performance car that was accessible. Yeah. Key moment. And and then we have it moving along in, in later in the 70s. We've got 1977. We've got the, that turbocharged uh, Formula One Renault car. Which... Which pushed that towards the turbocharger era. Yes, that program was not a success for about three years. Um, that car blew up consistently, and there was another key innovation on that Renault F1 car, which was the tires. Yeah, it had well, Michelin radial tires, mm-hmm. and that was considered also an innovation because everyone else in the F1 field back then was using bias by Goodyear's. Yep. So that that's an example of a motorsport being used to. Uh, perfect the engineering of a new engineering solution. Engineering of a new engineering solution. That 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 sounds interesting. Um, that uh, both the turbocharging and these uh, this new type of tire, the, the radial tire mm-hmm. um, that came from Michelin, also two two key moments um, late seventies. Now we get into the eighties. Oh yeah, and this is where it gets all. I mean, this is where it comes into the areas that. that it, I would say for myself, as the areas of where I think it started to get interested in cars, this is where I really enjoy it. Mm. I mean, I was born in 79, and so coming through the 80s is where I'd say I grew up and then came in from there. Well, uh, it was in 1982 that the FIA came up with a new organization around um, different motorsports classes. Mm -hmm. So you had Group A, Group B, and Group C. Now, Group C was uh, the formula for prototype sports cars. Correct. Interestingly, it was um, built around a fuel efficiency formula that each each of the, the cars racing in this, this era, which is considered one of the last great golden eras of sports car racing, mm-hmm. where you had Porsche, Mercedes, Lancia, Jaguar. They all had these big factory programs. Yeah. And later, uh, Peugeot. Mm-hmm. Um, but they... they they had to run to a set uh, fuel uh, formula, and they couldn't uh, burn off too much fuel. And interestingly, um, the Americans, IMSA, looked at this formula and said, no way, we're not doing this. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> the, the cars need to go as fast as possible. But that's also considered another great era of racing is the IMSA, Camel GT uh, series. It is, it yeah. is. But, uh, right, I think because we're getting demands from someone else of our trio here, 
I might have to take care of business, and then we're going to come back for part two. Does that work for you? Okay. All right. And we're back. But this time, not Group C. Should we talk about Group B? Group B. That's the one. Maybe you should explain this, because is this your religion? My I, religion is more Group C. It's not really my religion. I just like the nature of, in some parts of the globe, especially in the, the Group B car period, it was the, the idea to touch the top of the car as the cars went past, mm. was the goal for many of the spectators. Yeah. So just the sheer lunacy of the idea of throwing oneself towards a 600-plus horsepower car where the driver really didn't care about the people surrounding him. He was more focused on his line and what the directions his co-driver were giving him. Or her, I should say, at the time. Yeah, true. Interestingly, um, I think when, when we look back now on the Group B era of rallying, uh, there's very some iconic cars come to mind like the Ford RS200 or the Audi Quattro uh, S1, mm-hmm. um, or the the Peugeot, is it 205? Yeah, the T16. T16, mm-hmm. um, and the uh, the what was the name of the Lancia? There were two Lancias. There's O36, which was a two-wheel drive car. There was and then the, that, that was replaced. The Lancia Delta S4, I yeah, because the one you're thinking of, which was both turbocharged and supercharged. It was. But what's um What's not known quite as much is that there were Group B uh, circuit cars as mm-hmm. well, but it never really was organized very much. No, it didn't really take off. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the, the circuit racing that was most along the lines of where they had the Ferrari and the Porsche compete? Well, still- there was a, the Porsche 961, mm-hmm. which was uh, the race car version of the Porsche 959, which raced at Le Mans twice. I think it was either 85, 86, or 86, no, 86, 87. Um, and a version of that car also ran Paris Dakar, mm-hmm. or related to it. That was a nine five nine. Yep. And then um, Ferrari also was was working on the a Group B car as well. But it was um, it uh, I think the Ferrari uh, the F forty came out of that. Yeah, but, um, it was the GTO series. They were kind of yeah. continuing. It was the yeah. two eight eight that they were yeah. working on. Two eight eight GTO was yeah. the Group B. Um, which was a precursor to the F40. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm slowly accessing my Ferrari database internally. That's all right. Um, but it, it really was, uh, this is considered a golden era of um, rallying. Now, Group A was more associated with uh, touring car racing. Mm-hmm. Although, interestingly, when um, Group B was canceled at, at the end of 86, because of all, there was a lot of few deaths. And, yeah, and, the accidents, one might yeah. say. Um, the accidents. The accidents. Um it was a Group A formula that was adopted. Mm-hmm. They took Group A that was more related to touring cars, and then that became uh, rallying for a few years afterwards. Yeah. And then a Group A touring cars eventually evolved into super touring, uh, which is uh, considered a golden era of touring car racing. We're more getting into late 80s, early 90s now for that stuff. Yeah. So then if we look at, if we scroll back in regards to the specific years, I mean, if we look at 81. That was when we talk about the first uh, monocoque, the carbon monocoque, I should say, with the McLaren, right? That was the beginning of the Ron Dennis era of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of McLaren. That's yep. when he took over as the uh, the boss. And the team principal. Yeah, of, of McLaren, which was the first uh, carbon fiber chassis uh, car. But also another very significant moment, 1981. Cannonball Run. The film. I mean that. That introduction, the start there with the the Lamborghini. Oh, and then didn't they like, the paint, and then they changed the color? 
with the paint. No, no, that was so the second one. That was the second one. Yeah, oh, so right. the first one, well, the introduction, I will say, the Lamborghini driven by the two ladies is when they spray paint over the sign at the start. And ah. then the Trans Am police car tries to catch them. Right, but right, right. I certainly do not think this film is sped up whatsoever no. when that Lamborghini takes away from the Trans Am. But my word is that Lamborghini. No, it, it, was, a, it was a special Lamborghini, yeah. right? Yeah. Absolutely, but, but still, the start of that movie ah, oh, such such a great, great movie. Ah, oh. <sighs> we have a couple other significant moments. So we're just getting back on the engineering thread, engineering mm-hmm. breakthroughs, and that was the uh, first uh, dual cut transmission PDK um, application, which was first done on on the racetracks. And I think a lot of people think about Ferrari. Uh, I don't remember the exact year, but it was more in the late eighties that this. Uh, came onto a Ferrari F1 car, but Mm -hmm. it was actually Porsche that first put this uh, engineering solution onto a race car way back in 83, a Group C car. And then how do you feel about that, uh, like, these days? That was the beginning of the end, really, that... Yeah. (laughs) If you could, could, uh, uh, interestingly, going uh, in 1985, we got Back to the Future coming in, right, very iconic film that featured a car, but if you could take the technology of Back to the Future, go back in time, and erase PDKs, Everything Some people would be much certainly better. would. I mean, I personally have no problem with a double clutch or uh, paddle shifting. That is, I've got no problems or transition with that at all. Be it, but I'm equally at home with a manual transmission. Mm. But I really don't see the benefit, uh, the the disadvantage. I think one is obviously the way technology moves. You have to embrace that and move yeah. with the times. And so I don't really mind it. Yeah, I, I'm being uh, silly when I say that. I, um... It's it's a very special delight to drive a car, I would say, with over 500 horsepower with a stick shift. It is. It's a very unique experience that maybe not a lot of people get to do. Mm-hmm. So certainly not nowadays. You probably can't buy one, but um, it's still a very wonderful thing. But I think for the masses, uh, it just makes more sense to have... Um, uh, paddle shift transmissions now in, in supercars and high then, performance cars and then even I mean we're even going away from that now it's only just going to be a single gear so there'll be no shifting moving forwards just an electric whir mm-hmm. as the cars move is, along is that, your, is that your Tesla sound that was the Jetsons there that ah, was, just in a, that, that was a flying inner, car that was a, a drone my, in my inner George Jetson right ah, there okay. was just taking out from my giant Amazon blimp as it takes hovers over the city and then the blimp explodes exactly well, hopefully it's in not. 1930. Hope, hopefully it's not oh. with that paint that's kind of reacts to. You don't want to get it. Anyways, so let, let's look at uh, a different thread here. Let's look at um, film and, and video and, mm-hmm. and games. I mean, now obviously by the 80s we had there were a fair number of racing games that happened. Uh, you've got things like uh, I, one of the, the the first games that I played extensively as a kid was Pole Position. Yep. Which interestingly I didn't know it at the time, but that was Fuji Speedway. The, there's a a graphical bitmap sprite of, of Fuji in the background, but I had no idea what that was as a kid. Yep. And then you had, um, uh, no, Virtual Racing came out later, but uh, you've listed in this uh, Outrun. I mean, I like Outrun, because obviously you have the, the Ferrari Testarossa that you were meant to be driving in. Yeah. But it was the first game that I felt was different because you could change the radio station, so you had control of what music was being played, ah. which is very interesting factor for me. So that was key. And then obviously I go into it more, which is test drives, the idea that you could have different cars and you could test drive something that you'd only imagine you could mm. ever have the chance to dream of. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a particularly exciting game, test drive, but the idea that you could have the different option of cars, I think made it all the more 
Yeah, the, the premise of licensed cars and a multitude of licensed cars appearing in a video game that probably was a big innovation then. Yeah. Because now when you look at video games these days and for the past 10 years, it's all about the car list, right? What cars are what in that cars video game? That, yeah. What cars are debuting in that video game? But or there was, a, there was a period of time. How many sky, different skylines can you get in a game? I heard a stat once that there are more Skyline GTRs in the UK than there are in Japan. Probably. And the, the GTR is a religion in in the UK, mm-hmm. as it is in many other parts of the world, but in particular in the UK, the the, the uh, GTROC, GTR Owners Club, is, is a very strong club there. But what I've heard from people that are in that scene is that most of them became aware of these kind of vehicles from Gran Turismo. And we're jumping yes. ahead a little bit here, but Gran Turismo did a lot of things in showcasing many aspects of JDM car culture, mm-hmm. so certainly JDM car models that were very little seen outside of Japan. And a lot of um, young people or young adults, as we were back then, uh, became aware of, of these kind of cars. Um, I certainly didn't know what a GTR was uh, until I, I played Gran Turismo. No, I mean, it, I'd only seen them on TV sporadically, but the idea that I had the, the, the chance to, to race or drive, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even then, if we're keeping on that JDM culture, I mean... 87 is reportedly the, fi- the first time when the Drift King himself started doing his drifting. He invented drifting. Yeah. No one had ever slid a car before that. Well, ever. No, there was a driver before him that had slid a car because he was doing with the bi- the tires, but then he took it, the Drift King took it a little bit further. Yeah. And the idea was he could say, well, what, what happens if I look at the style and how I can create this from here? Yeah, it's a style, style thing mm-hmm. in and of itself. You can look at Back at there's this many famous pictures of Jim Clark uh, drifting, um, yeah. Cortinas around, you know, famous uh, uh, British circuits. And of course, that, that kind of style. That was a style of driving. Ronnie Peterson, the yep, F1 definitely. driver, late '70s was considered. He drove sideways all the time. Mm-hmm. But um, the notion of drifting as an end unto itself, late '80s. Yeah. Interestingly, it took until 2001 for D1GP to be founded. It, it was. Definitely an underground thing for a period of time, right? I mean, it gestated in the yeah. in the mountains of of Japan and the industrial areas of Japan. All I remember from here, when I first sort of started learning about drifting in the early nineteen nineties, was how it was this crazy illegal thing that people were doing in the mm. mountains above Tokyo. Yeah, specifically in those mountains. Above. How do you remember the first time you heard about drifting, or you saw a drift car? This the first time I ever saw drifting on TV was thanks to Jeremy Clarkson where he had a spin-off series from Top Gear where he went around the world and I saw that and it was the TV show yeah. that he was on there where the drifting and the guy yeah. had crashed his did knocked it off the mountain and he just did yeah. his car there for like two weeks that was before the relaunch of Top Gear that was, was before he became the because uh, the Top Gear relaunch was 2001 I oh, remember was, that very vividly it was well well before that yeah, so this is in the 90s. 90s this was it was still it was on appearing on Top Gear yeah but uh, and it was very much an early period of time yeah. so the 90s when I first got into it I was like yeah I like that idea I liked it a lot you know I, I used to have a Toyota Corolla um, in the late 80s mm-hmm. uh, SR5 um, so 1981 and I remember whenever it would rain I lived in Canada I would purposely slide the car around so if you think about it I independently invented drifting you were the you were the catalyst for it for the drift king himself he was like <laughs> that, that oh, is not true at all I've heard this guy in, in Canada has been serving he's sliding around yeah, purposely sliding around no none of this is true and then if we want to talk about more cinematic things as we get our as we leave well actually no let's 
we should. My one of my favorite ever YouTube clips is seeing Ayrton Senna drive the NSX in his Gucci loafers when they launched it. When they did the promo Wait, video. Wait, what was YouTube around? No, YouTube no, no, wasn't around. No, no, the one I watched now. Ah, so right. I could, I could archive never, video yeah, on so YouTube. I, I could see it once at a time. I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. But now, mm. thanks to the pleasures of YouTube, I and whenever I'm feeling down, I like, look, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cheer myself up, look at it, and send a drive, see that camera angle down, see his Gucci loafers dancing on three pedals. Oh, so good. You know, one thing I love about YouTube and is the amount of very obscure racing and automotive films and commercials that you can access now mm -hmm. for example um the uh the c110 uh skylines N nissan skylines were called called the ken mary skyline right Which, and i didn't realize that's how they got their name from the advertisement yeah from the ads right yeah. there was uh this this western couple right this blonde couple that would appear to advertise a car and they were ken and mary yeah that's why they're called ken mary but now you just just Google that Ken Mary uh, Skyline commercial, and you can watch the TV commercials from the early seventies. So why it's called a Ken Mary Skyline? But all these things are available. There's very obscure any any thin slice of motorsports history that you're into. There's a lot of promotional films that were done that I don't know who saw them, but it was certainly for a very small um, audience. Yeah, but now you can enjoy all these film. things now. Yeah. And then also, one of my other favorite, favorite video games that I still really enjoy playing to this day, I am Ben Stewart's Super Off-Road. Ah, uh, yeah. So the I knew, top down view, right? Yeah. yeah. So I knew nothing about Iron Man Stewart. Nothing at all. Didn't know <laughs> anything about him and the series that was run. But this video game, I was like, this is the greatest video game. I can play with more than two people. Yeah. There can be three of us yeah. versus the computer. Yeah. It was so good. There's a, a arcade in downtown uh, Los Angeles that still has that. No, there's several of them, and yeah. even even at uh, SEMA this year, they had that in the Toyota booth. Really, yeah. I love how you can just you spin the wheel, right? To yeah, get the thing to turn. Just... Spin the wheel, and you've got the turbo boost to press the nitro for the nitro yeah. button. And, you had, and it was the, also <laughs> the idea that you could spend money and upgrade parts in your cars, which made it perform uh, better. So you had to hit the jackpots. The I remember money. I used to play a demolition derby game arcade game yeah. i haven't seen that in, in a long time so now we're also looking at a, another golden era right we're mm -hmm. we're now on the cusp of the 1990s and there's a lot of fantastic things that happened in the 90s you can look at the um it's a, considered a, a golden era of gt cars as well and there's so many amazing uh, japanese cars if, if that's your your religion but if you look at formula one also a really amazing era right I mean, yeah, as I put up all the drivers, these are the drivers that, that won championships in 1990, in the 90s. So you've got Senna, Prost, Mansell, Schumacher, Hill, Villeneuve, Hakkinen. So they're all mm. the different drivers that won in that 10-year period. I would could also argue that 80s is also... No, it's... A, if you look at late 80s as well, like the turbo era. So I, yeah. did, I did a quick Some of one. these people overlap in yes that, right? they do so obviously you've got Santa Prost and Mansell who'd overlap between the two yeah, yeah. but there was a few PK as well yes yeah. there was a few more winners in the 90s opposed to the 80s if that yeah, makes sense that's, that's why true. I sort of made the switch there but I just like the idea that there was so many trade-offs whereas a different person won from a different team it was really mm. was up in the air yeah which is interesting yeah and an amazing same, amazing time and the same can also be said for not only Formula 1 but also the WRC and that was when I felt the WRC was incredibly relevant. Mm. So I liked it that you had um, 
and different manufacturers that were going for it. So obviously, if we look at the list that I just pulled up here, which was Carlos Sainz, Yuha Kankin, Didi Oro, Tommy Mackinnon, that's coming through very much in the Toyota sense, in the Toyota cars. But then when Mitsubishi were coming through, uh, Mitsubishi, remember when they used to make cars? And they still did the Safari Rally back then, was part of the WRC. Yeah. And, and uh, the rallies still, some of them were more old school. They weren't formatted for television back then. Some of them were really long contests. Yeah, you had the really, really long Really, stages. really crazy, yeah. Yeah. I think the 90s has a lot of amazing things uh, going. It, we, in terms of sports cars, it, we saw the collapse of, uh, of Group C, mm -hmm. sadly, yep. um, in the early 90s. But out of the ashes of that came a, an amazing but perhaps sadly short-lived era, which was the, the GT1 era, mm -hmm. which started um, in the BPR. I don't know if many people uh, uh, reading this know what the BPR is, but it later became... Um, the FI GT series. Correct. And, um, and there were some incredible cars that, 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 that were racing there, like the McLaren um, F1, it's worth noting, the first hypercar, mm -hmm. 94. That same car, racing version of it, won Le Mans in 1995. It's the last production-based car to ever win Le Mans. Correct. Will likely ever win Le Mans. And then you had some pretty crazy machines coming, the 911 GT1. You had... Um, the Mercedes uh, CLK GTR, correct. Toyota GT1. But then not only that, you had the GT2 class as well that was just underneath it, yeah. which is also an incredible class as well. Yeah, the, that was when the 993 was racing, which yeah. is a fantastic car, and the, the Viper is also yeah, so big the, back then. the GTSR Viper. You also had the Lotus Elise would compete amongst those, the long tail version. Yeah. They also had the Saline Mustangs even compete there. Tim Allen had a racing team that competed in the BPR yeah. series. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of great racing that I was able to, I was lucky enough to go and see in my time in England back yeah. then. Yeah, it was a, a fantastic time. Also, you had some prototypes coming, like the Ferrari 333 SP. Yep. It was a beautiful car. The and, Panos um, team had their cars mm -hmm. in there that were certainly very unique at yeah, the time. Yeah, front, front engine monsters. Mm -hmm. The loudest race car I've ever uh, experienced, sort of a top fuel dragster. Yeah. Crazy machine. And then, um, and then if you look at touring cars as well, the the... Early to mid '90s, uh, DTM cars were some fantastic uh, machines, a like Class One cars, mm -hmm. some really technologically advanced cars. The uh, the Mercedes uh, that Racing had this this weight that was in a tunnel that would go back and forth uh, to get traction or for braking. This crazy stuff happening. Yeah, and it's also the, this time when I feel for me in particular, there was the really was the crossover where it wasn't just seeing the motorsports, but it was how there was all the expansion to mm, culture that I came to enjoy and was enjoying mm. came into place. So it was like I said, there's more videos coming into it. This is when you see the comics come into it. For example, the anime come through, yeah. um, all to do with the JDM culture. So, I mean, it was really was an exciting time. Yeah, initial D. Yep. Major stuff happening. Yep. And it was interesting when you, and Wangan Midnight, which mm. I never knew what Wangan was until that thing, uh. which is the highway. Yeah. So yeah. these things that you learn, you know, yeah. from comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think back back at this time, if you're into Japanese cars, it still was reasonably underground. You had to go to a Japanese uh, bookshop, magazine shop to get these these uh, these magazines to find out all these things that were happening on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. But it was um, a very exciting time. Yeah. Oh, and I, it's definitely worth uh, pointing out Daytona USA and Sega Rally, two very significant video games. Oh, fundamental. I mean, yeah. the idea that... Uh, Daytona where you could race around the track and you could slam it into the car. It was such a great, both exceptionally good games. Mm. The idea, and then even better when you had a Daytona where you could race against eight people. 
Yeah, incredible. Just few and far between. Uh, that for me, that was the last time where, when you thought about video games, you would think about you would go out to play video games. That seems like an alien concept now, but back then it was it was a really cool scene. You'd go out and all the best racers would be standing around and look. And if you if you wanted to throw down, you'd walk up and you'd put your you quarter money, you put on, your the, on the machine. machine. I'm racing next. Yeah, you're gonna come in next. Amazing time. I mean, I still I was able to still carry that through for a few more years. But it was a really, really good time to be. And I think it was also good because you had the ports where you had the games that you play in the arcade and you could play them at home mm. as well, which yeah. was nice. There's a, talking about video games, we have to talk about the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And for fans of car culture, Gran Turismo, mm-hmm. which we mentioned earlier before, yep. um, 1997. That was a very, very significant moment. Yeah. The funny thing is for Gran, Tur- Gran Turismo was the... Once I played that game, and the next weekend I went out and bought a PlayStation. Yeah, I was like, "This, this is a game changer." Yeah, I remember I'd have my memory card with my cars on it. And I'd like bring them over to my friend's house, and we'd look at the different cars that we'd built. And yeah, was, yeah, that was that was a fantastic moment. Um, it's also worth pointing out that uh, we were talking about magazines earlier, and we were talking about some magazines that go way back in time. Mm-hmm. Decades and decades ago, Road and Track, Hot Rod Magazine, Motorsport Magazine, Autosport. But we thought it'd be fun to point out um, a magazine that is a very, I would more argue that it's its a very significant brand on social media now. Very That has a huge following on Instagram, which mm-hmm. is Super Street. Yep. Which is, I think, having a, a, a fantastic resurgent. Uh, Samuel Dew's doing a great job with that and his and his crew, but it goes back to '96 that that magazine was was founded. And interestingly, so I'm told is that Super Street was previously Max Power US, Max Power being a very famous uh, British tuning magazine. magazine. Yeah, publication. Yeah. Of course, all of this pales into significance for a key event in 1997 that we're still feeling today. Which, very important which is Toyota Toyota did something amazing uh, isn't that that incredible car that you love to drive and you've had several the Prius no but yes uh, we have to we have to give some some respect to the Prius mm-hmm. it and interestingly um, the first Prius I don't even think I would bet I bet that 99% of people that are listening to this don't know what the original Prius looks like I can't even conjure up an image the first gen Prius. Well, it was essentially a Yaris, basically, wasn't yeah. it? I, I don't remember. I yes. never noticed it. I never heard of it. Yeah, so it was a Yaris, and it had a, a, what I'd consider a bouton for me. Yeah. Or a trunk, is what you might say in this country. But, um, I mean, it is a significant car, obviously, where it's come through, and it's one of those technologies that people were riding up with. Is this going to be a thing? What's mm. going to happen with it? And seeing going from there to where it is now, I mean, I drive an electric car now. It's great. Mm. Well, we should also talk about the the first well i i don't think we could call this the first electric car because back going back into the history of the automobile there's been many electric cars before this one this is the first would say major manufacturer having a go at a successful electric car in in the modern era in the modern era yeah the ev1 there was a period of time where having a gasoline or petrol powered car was not necessarily the standard there was a period of time where you had steam powered cars mm-hmm. and electric powered cars and um Obviously, petrol one out the day. There's probably many reasons for that and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. But it's worth noting that, that EV1. Yeah. And it wasn't, I still think it's a good looking car. Yeah. 
Yeah, ahead of its time, definitely. Definitely ahead of its time. And if what uh, the big what if that continued that program to where it would be today, if then rather than destroying it and crushing everyone's dreams, those two hundred people that had the cars or whatever it was. So let's jump ahead now and look at the two thousands. And interestingly, we're still almost just passing uh, twenty years ago. It is, <laughs> which and is the- which is hard to. That's kind of strange because it feels like about five minutes ago to me. Funny, and the biggest thing about what I would say about the 2000s is the movement towards GPSs and not using maps anymore. Mm. I mean, if someone was to say, James, get the map out, give us some directions. I mean, who ha- no one has maps anymore in their car. Yeah. I mean, they're on the phones. And that's I- it. I'm completely dependent on my phone. I-, I literally use the GPS every time I drive. And that is because, well, we live in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and traffic is a bit of a nightmare here and and you need it to reroute you every time because um if you take the same route there may be an extra jam there may be some congestion and there's always in los angeles there's always another way to get there there is and uh one always has this typical los angeles conversation oh which way did you come exactly oh yes i went down the 10 but uh, you know i exited and took venice boulevard further you think what you took venice boulevard down there and and then I went up La Brea. What? La Brea? Yeah. And we were, this is a very typical um, L.A. conversation. You could even make that into maybe a Saturday Night Live sketch, I feel. I, I think that that is where this comes from. What was that called? The Californians, right? Yeah. That typical. It, but I find it funny whenever you, you get into that typical L.A. conversation, this skit from Saturday Night Live always comes on one side. Anyway, Fast and Furious. Well, that was 2001, but I think you're skipping over probably the greatest one of, might say one of the greatest car movies of all time, Gone in 60 Seconds. I've never seen it. With Nicolas Cage. I haven't seen it. Oh, Rod, it's like you've never watched movies before. But not only that, also leading up to that, <laughs> I would say Getaway in Stockholm. That, that is a significant moment. Whether it's true, whether it's false, who knows, but it exists. But wait, wasn't there a film done in Paris? Well, that was the Rendezvous. Ron, and that... That was in when was that made? That was the seventies. Seventies. Yep. You could say that that Rendezvous was the first Jim Connor film, or what would later become viral style automotive filmmaking on the interwebs. You could probably trace that lineage back through no. Getaway in Stockholm to Rendezvous, right? Definitely, definitely. So that's very much very true. But I mean, do, do people here know what? Do our listeners know what Rendezvous is? Should we explain what this film is, or go ahead? Just Google it. While I sneeze. Yes, go ahead. Well, the rendezvous is, one might say, a trip where a gentleman is in Paris. Yes. Paris, one might say. And he's driving his car to try and... It's a Ferrari, right? Uh, you see a Ferrari. However, I don't think he's driving a Ferrari. Really? Oh, I always thought he's driving a Ferrari. No, that's the, the car you see at the end is a Ferrari. He was, ah. in fact, driving a Mercedes 600, I think, for, from memory. Ah, okay. It's definitely a Mercedes. I don't know if it's a 600, but it was a Mercedes with the camera strapped to the mm, car. Mm. And so that's what he did. The director drove the car, allegedly. I think. More or less street racing. Yes. Uh, and then that's, that's what, 12, no, 17 minutes long, yeah. I think, something and like that? he's just going psycho through Paris. Yeah. Also, slightly maybe sped up again as well, the uh, frame rate a little bit. Uh, but, um, so the same was what then came through for what I would say, for example, would be Getaway in Stockholm, mm. which is maybe a true film, maybe not a true film. Who knows? Sort of. People secret. going psycho through Stockholm, and if you've ever driven in Stockholm, it's got some fantastic tunnels, and it's the roads are very unique. It's it's uh, 
quite picturesque to be blasting through the city. Yeah, and then obviously the spin-off from that was Getaway in Stockholm. And they had, I think they had like eight Getaway in Stockholm movies come through. Mm, but there yeah. was also Ghost Rider who took offense to Getaway in Stockholm that was the motorcyclist. Oh, right. But uh, anyway, we're getting away from 2001 was The Fast and the Furious. And I think this is significant um, because this points out what is considered the last global uh, car culture. Or I should say automotive youth culture in that it was very common in any any city across the world, really, where you would see modified, customized cars. Back then they said tuner cars, but mm -hmm. that's very unfashionable to say that now. But if we say modified cars, in the UK you had the Essex boys with their, their uh, hotted up uh, Escorts and, and Fiestas, the yep. and the hot hatches. Yep, yep. And, um, and then uh, in... Uh, in North America, you had um, people uh, modifying their Honda Civics and their Preludes and their uh, Mitsubishi Eclipses and all this stuff. It was a it was a big movement, yep. and uh, that that went across uh, all the way across the West. Uh, I, I, you got to call out Australia and New Zealand as well. New Zealand has a very strong culture, especially. Yeah, it, it also helped I think at that time because. Um, that was when they had implemented laws in Australia and New Zealand, which was the 15-year rule, whereas the car was X amount of years old. You could then import mm. it in from Japan, which also yeah. helped with that community. So it was a big community for the And in the cars. UK, no such rule. Just import it. No, they took on – they adopted the Australian one. So it was In the still, UK? Yeah, they still had to wait. They couldn't oh. do the immediate adoption. Well, when did they change it? Because now you can import anything. So it's a different one. It's ah. a gray market one where you can get it in and get a few cars in. Yeah. But the idea of then you have to modify it or it can be done for certain things. Yeah. There's a higher tax bracket associated yeah. with it. Yeah. But if you're buying the aged cars, then there's the tax I, bracket I understand, comes yeah. out and whatnot. Uh, Canada has a 15-year rule as well, and I think it's 25 for the uh, US. US. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at any rate, this was a global movement, and... The essence of this this global movement in car culture was captured in in movies with those original Fast and Furious films, mm -hmm. and that uh, a few years later came uh, the Need for Speed uh, Underground mm -hmm. um, games, which also was looking at this uh, modified car culture and attempting to replicate that street street culture and street racing. And for better or for worse, it was the popularity of of Fast and Furious films. And the Need for Speed games that led to the uh, authorities uh, cracking down on street racing. Yeah, the clamping down. And, and um, so things have changed now. But it, I would say, from my perspective, enthusiast culture, modified car culture is not as widespread anymore as it used to be. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and you, everywhere you went, you would see modified Japanese cars. Everywhere. It was just normal. Um that's not so much the case anymore. I think it's it's a combination of a couple of things that why that's happened. I think it's because cars now that they're sold come essentially with all the bits mm. that you used to want to add before. So I remember, look, the first going by Gran Turismo, the first thing you wanted to do was you wanted to improve your air filter, you wanted to improve your exhaust. That was the cheapest way to get the extra horsepower. So when I first had my first car, that's the first things I did. But now if I've got my car now, it's generally got enough horsepower that I don't really need to do that anymore. It's also worth noting that the relationship of young adults to car is separating. Is sort of totally, it, it already separated a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, the stats are there. The Every year, all around the world, less and less young people are getting their licenses. Mm -hmm. the, the, they're just not interested anymore. In the past, 
the car was a symbol of freedom. Your first autonomous zone away from your parents. Yep. Now you just log into social media on, on your phone. And you have apps, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you have your own universe. Um, it's totally different. And a focus has shifted towards curating your life, right? Mm -hmm. We got, um, uh, at the time of this recording, Conchella's coming out, or it's, it's already started. And people are going there. They're, they're, they're curating their, their lives. Um, they're all trying to look like pop stars on, on social media, et cetera. And that is the focus now. Yep. In the past, the car was, was a, an expression of freedom and uh, an autonomous zone. And that relationship has shifted, sadly, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. But that's just the way it is now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how it comes about. I mean, obviously, for me in particular, if we look at the Fast and the Furious movies, the main one that impacted me the most and what I enjoyed the most is the, the Tokyo Drift. I mean, mm. that's still my favorite Fast and the Furious movie, mm. even though it doesn't really fit in with the direction of the, the series at this point in time. Yeah, well, it's not action films that, that happen to have cars in it. And yeah. the, that, that franchise has gone from strength to strength. It's incredibly powerful now. Mm -hmm. um, but the the roots of Fast and Furious were in being a direct reflection of this this wider movement in in car culture. Exactly, of doing things with your friends mm. and doing it together and competing, which yeah. sort of brings it back in full circle to like the Bentley boys, except with less dinner jackets. And they're not green. Yeah, and they have thin tires. Yeah, wire wheels. But do they have subwoofers? Uh, I don't think it would matter if they Bluetooth? did or not. Uh, I don't think it would matter at that uh, point. Mm. But yeah, so let's hit on a few other key things here. 2005. Yep. Forza. Yep. Reason why I bought the, an Xbox. The, the competitor to um, to Gran Turismo. Mm -hmm. I used to like Gotham City Racing. I had an Xbox One and that was my favorite game back then, funny enough. Funny enough, I, I also what I also really liked about the different racing games was I liked buying the different racing games for places where I'd lived or been to. Yeah. So, funnily enough, uh, Gotham Racing had a track in Sydney. Yeah. And they goes around the corner from that is where I proposed to my wife. Oh, really? So that's the video game. So I had a copy of that just so I could have that. I remember they had, they had Stockholm in it, too. It's funny, I moved to Stockholm years later. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, th I think... Uh, Video games themselves, um, racing video games, have uh, it's now possible with esports or the the latest simulation technology to really train and and um, develop one's skill set for doing track days, car control, all these different things. You can with VR now you can have an incredible immersive experience. And some of um, the lineage of the the top simulation games, whether you, you look at uh, iRacing mm -hmm. or you look at a set of cores, as, uh, as we have a console, uh, what is a simulator to our left over there? Yeah, and that one's running um, Project Cars, mm -hmm. but all these have have an interesting uh, lineage um, that go back into the 1990s. So um, if you look at uh, iRacing, it has its root in uh, NASCAR racing and. Before that, uh, GP Legends, okay, the Papyrus uh, Studio, uh, and those those were pretty mainstream PC games, but they they were trying to to develop simulation technology. I will say to this day, my dad was incredibly proud the first time he was ever able to do a lap of Grand Prix Legends without crashing. Without crashing, very difficult. Very very. I mean, it took him several <laughs> years. Let's be honest here. My father will happily admit this. It took him a long time 
to get a full lap down at a reasonable pace on Grand Prix Legends before he could go a full lap without crashing. And then you look at um, R-Factor, or mm-hmm. R-Factor 2 now, and that engine um, was produced by a company called ISI. Mm-hmm. And that, that game engine powered a lot of different uh, games. Um, going back, the lineage goes back to a game called Sports Car GT, which came out in 1999. It was published by EA. Mm-hmm. And then that, that turned into the uh, F1 uh, series that EA used to uh, produce. And it's a, sa- a lineage of that same uh, game engine. It goes all the way back uh, into the 1990s. And if you look at... Um, the GTR simulation games, GT Legends, mm-hmm. which was a game that I that was the first video game I ever worked on, also used that that same um, that same game engine. Um, and there's other other game in, games like Automobilista, mm-hmm. which also uh, use that that uh, that game engine. Um, so it's pretty interesting. But uh, we we see now the rise of esports, and there's other ways to connect to um, to car culture, yeah. but um, that's more where things are going in the future, right? Virtual reality, all the all these different things. But um, we we also should look at the powerhouses on um, in this crazy social world that that we're we're a part of. Yeah. Um, in particular, I find it interesting to look at uh, uh, the Hoonigans because mm-hmm. they're they're going from strength to strength. Those guys, you know, all all due respect to them. I went out to Urundale Speedway this past weekend and saw the, um, one of the events that they're putting at on. At their burnyard? Yeah, they've set up this permanent facility now at Urundale, and they had the Amazon series, uh, which is a, a very well-produced uh, TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can see that Hoonigan, as a brand, was established not that long ago, but... 2010, uh, I think, if we're looking yeah, at our records, It's going to be uh, 10 years uh, next year, so mm-hmm. maybe that was a little while ago. Hopefully we get both get invited to the party. <laughs> no their pressure, anniversary no anniversary party at SEMA and um, and then the, you can look at the interlinking between Hoonigans and Ken Block and Gymkhana mm-hmm. and those the Gymkhana film series which are the some of the most iconic uh, internet films of, of the last few years yeah. and it's a, such a powerhouse now everyone uh, is waiting to see what, what they're going to do next and somehow they always come up with an amazing interesting film but that's 2008 was the first, first one, yeah. yeah. Well, it was just him, Ken, just driving around a lot, if I think correctly. Yeah. Something like oh, an abandoned, uh, wasn't it like a place where they had a couple of buildings and like an airstrip kind of thing that yeah. were shooting around? Yeah. Yeah. To where they go now, when the latest one was five different countries and five different cars. <laughs> I, I still love that that first film. It was uh, shocking stuff. But interestingly, um, 2008 was also when uh, Speed Hunters was, uh, was founded, too. I mean, that goes back to my personal history, but that's over 10 years ago now. But you can see um, with Speedhunters, we were more looking at blogging because that was the big thing back then. Mm-hmm. But you can see how there's this shift more towards um, Instagram feeds or putting content out in a, in a multitude of different areas, right? You can see Hoonigans, they, they're such a strong YouTube channel. Yeah. Or you Several at, channels now that yeah, they've branched out yeah. to. It's so strong. Or you look at Super Street with their huge uh, Instagram uh, mm-hmm. uh, following. So we only have one thing left on our list here. We're coming to to the end, and maybe this is the this is the foundation of a new motorsport. Yeah. That is now the golden child of the motorsports industry with all the uh, 
it seems like all the OEMs are participating. Yeah, they're certainly they're involved, or they're getting they're buying teams to become more involved in it. Mm. Formula E, twenty fourteen. Yeah, it was when it first started and debuted. Uh, admittedly, it, as we do this over the Long Beach Grand Prix weekend, I remember when they were racing around the streets of Long Beach. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't that long ago that, yeah. that, that they came out here. They did two two seasons, two races here. Yeah, I went to the first one. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that that storyline of electrification is so important now for the automotive industry, and that is why all the OEMs are signing up, right? There's more and more coming. Porsche's coming. Mercedes-Benz is coming. Yep. Um, Audi's there already, obviously. Yeah, yeah. They've got, yeah. I mean, it's the future of where things are going, and especially when you see, obviously, where the hypercar market is going and where everything's, they're just getting the performance out of those cars, like the new latest one obviously is the Pininfarina Batista 1900 horsepower running with the Remac battery mm. setup which is what the Aston Martin one's going to be utilizing as well I think Yeah. I mean the idea to get 19, 1900 horsepower I mean I remember back <laughs> when I was looking at supercars or what I thought was wow the new Porsche Turbo came out it had 360 horsepower wow that's, that's incredible insane. and now a Camry has 330 horsepower so yeah. it's like 1900 one nine zero zero. You you need that, right? <laughs> Obviously, when I'm getting my milk, what else am I going to do yeah. with? But it is so, a- what have we learned here? We we've just zigzagged across um, technical innovation, motorsports history, media outlets, entertainment, the relationship of young people with different parts of car culture. What can we learn from this as we point into into the future? Well, I guess that there's there's going to be there's always change is always ahead so we're always saying things moving forward so when we take a look back like this and go through a couple of decades so just over over 100 years of automotive history we can see where things are changing whereas the car was used as a utilitarian platform to get around it's still going to be used like that but it's just going to be more where you're going to be able to do more things with it i think that there's certainly going to be dealing with things like automation coming through well, we're not going to be driving the cars; they'll be driving us. So, what else are we going to be? Ooh, sad face. What else are we going to be doing? Well, sometimes in the four hundred five rod, you know, you wish that the car was driving itself. Okay, that's true. Yeah. So, what else are you going to be doing inside the car? There's going to be this. Is going to be a space for everything else that can happen. You're going to be there. working on your Instagram following, obviously. Well, there's that too. But you're going to be live streaming your DJ set or your your makeup tutorials. Or you could be just living in augmented reality and virtual reality in there. Or you could sleep. That That's too. what I'll be doing. I'll be sleeping. Well, there's that too. Or books on tape, maybe. <laughs> They're not really even on tape anymore. Uh, good but what time. about enthusiasts? What about people that are passionate about cars and have some kind of hobby or lifestyle that relates to cars? What, 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 where are they going to go? Where, or should where are we going to go? I mean, there's still always going to be people that's going to be looking at making things go faster. There's, without a shadow of a doubt, there's always people going to be doing that. Um, Have you heard about this new law that's coming into effect in the EU where new cars, I think it's 2021 or so, they'll be speed limited. They'll, they'll, they'll know the, the speed limit of the road and they'll, they just won't go any faster. How's that going to relate to buying an exotic car in Europe by a 2022 model and you, go, you can't drive it above the speed limit? Well, I'm sure there's probably people that figure that there's ways around that that are smarter than me I can figure out that well maybe if I put this USB drive in it will just tell the computer that I am doing the right things and I might not be going the speed limit well you can look at the motor 
the ubiquitous form of transportation that was on the roads before the car showed up, mm-hmm. which was horse mm-hmm. or horse and carriage, what happened to them? Uh, well, if you were in France, they just ended up as burgers, right? I mean, that's a different story. <laughs> no, well, the point I'm trying to get across here is that that became a hobby yeah. for a certain segment of society, the wealthy. Yeah. Um, One day and, I hope to have a mini pony. <laughs> a Hyundai. Um, but I think you you can see that there's a movement towards track cars mm-hmm. and track days as a thing is is uh, now a huge business for all, pretty well any racing track now. Yep. And um, I think that will definitely become a thing. Yep. Um, there's yet to be an organization that's cracked the code or the mystery of how to make an eSport racing series that has absolutely mass participation on the scale of the top eSports. Because mm-hmm. right now, as, as we record this, it's still a niche. Um, the, the automotive games, I guess. Automotive eSports. It's something that someone needs to figure out how to progress mm-hmm. but i see it that video gaming is going to emerge with motorsports and you're going to see live video game type of experiences with augmented reality mm-hmm. once that comes in um the gamification of motorsports and live motorsports will happen eventually the the motorsports organizations need to figure this out how to integrate gaming live happening at the same time yeah but for a mass audience, mm-hmm. not just for a niche sim racing audience. Yeah. I love sim racing, but it is it doesn't have the biggest audience in the world and, and it is got a big barrier to entry. But someone will figure that out. Eventually. Yeah. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Maybe I'll help them. Yeah. We'll see. Whatever works. And I also see it that there will be a continued interest in these older cars. It may also be that people start to um do electric kits on classic cars. Well, it's already happening now yeah. with the kits they do, so I could see certainly see more of that happening. Yeah. And I mean, I also really like it how even the OEMs are doing that. Like Jaguar talked about how they were being able to make the change the cars to electric. Yeah, and it's non-invasive too, right? You could change it back. You too. could change it back if need be yeah. for some of the cars they talked about. I think one thing I think would be really cool is if you if you get an electric, you electrify your classic car, but you can program in the exact characteristics of the petrol engine. The exact amount of power, how it revs, even have the sound there. Um, well, maybe you should just leave the engine in to begin with. But in the case that petrol or fuel or gasoline, what do they say in this country? Gas. Yes. Gas. You've got gas in this country. That's what that smell is. Yeah. That's a terrible joke. It was. Um, it was, I'm not it, was a, it was a real stinker. Um, but at any rate, in, in the case that that gas becomes, you just can't get it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will, will be conversions, and then the hobby will continue. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wide open, I think, at this point, as to what's happening. And then eventually, there'll be drone conversions, mm-hmm. especially on De- DeLoreans. Yep. And they'll be flying. Everywhere. Yeah. As long as they hit that 1.21 gigawatts, they'll be good to go. And then, and then there will be time travel, and then they can go back and race in the past and in a parallel all, reality. Yeah. yeah. And we should probably leave this there. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for sitting down and giving me this little project for us to talk about. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I know Kiwi sort of enjoyed it and then got upset and then came back and really enjoyed it since she's come back uh, after a treat fiasco. But, Rod, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I guess what we're going to figure out is if anyone wants to hear more about us talk about stuff like this, we'll be happy to because we haven't even talked about certain like segments of car culture. 
Yeah, you we go. didn't talk about Formula One that much. We didn't talk about the beginnings of Formula One or the different. We, I suppose we could do this for any motorsport. Yeah, or and even not only that, we could look at different uh, like genres. I mean, we could look at obviously with Japanese car culture. We could look at like the the greaser car culture they have in Sweden, which obviously is phenomenal. Mm. Or we could look at the drifting culture they have in uh, Arabia. The Tafit is it that they call it out there. It, it, there's so many different um, subcultures mean, that started in one country and then went to another country, and they, they've done incredible things. But this is a whole other uh, subject. Exactly. So if anyone wants to hear us talk again, let us know. We'd love to put topics down and put something together. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Rod, for being a wonderful guest. Thanks even to Kiwi for being awesome, as always. If you've got any questions about the podcast, you can always reach out to us at No Breaking on Instagram or Facebook. And then next week, we'll have someone else on talking about their journey into this so always leave us a positive review we like those ones as many stars as you can give us and say some nice words until then guys we'll see you next time bye bye ciao